0: Hello and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. Today I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Peggy Ang. Peggy is a powerhouse global executive in consumer and brand management integrated marketing, media, and communications, and she has led the marketing and brand efforts for some of the world's largest brands, including Sony, Animal Planet, Samsung Electronics, and most recently, she was Chief Marketing Officer and SVP of Marketing at LG Electronics.
1: Hi, Peggy. Hi, Valerie. It's good to see you and hear you.
0: Good to hear. It's good to see you and hear you, too. i I know we've been trying to make this interview happen for a few years, and we're all so busy that we're finally finally here. And I'm so, so excited for a few reasons. Number one, um, you have been an incredible personal inspiration to me in my career. Um, I think that one of the biggest breakthrough moments for me in learning from, an executive happened from you. And I'm going to tell that story in a second. And I just am so just impressed with, um, watching you lead what you've done, what you've been able to accomplish. And I'm so excited to be able to tell your story today.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm humbled for that, but I, I learned from the community that I'm with and
0: you're one of them in my community. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, you know, I've already um, introduced to my audience a little bit about your background and all of the amazing places that you've worked. And we've had the pleasure of working together at at two of the companies that you've been at. And, um, you know, I think it's been um, just incredible to kind of watch you kind of navigate. And, you know, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on Xi Dynasty, not only because of what you've been able to accomplish, but You come from the world of electronics, which is an incredibly male-dominated field, as we all know, and I just saw the sigh happen on your face. And so, um, you know, obviously we know that, you know, there's a lot to navigate there. And so I want to touch a little bit about, you know, that and any advice you have, just because we all know that, you know, it can be a challenge and I'm sure that you've had some strategies, but I think one of the things that I've always loved um, about watching you lead is just how just composed and how just you just get there and you get done and you don't let anything affect you. I mean, you might, you might do it behind the scenes, but you never let anyone see you sweat, which I absolutely love. Um, so just excited to dig in on those things.
1: Um, my pleasure.
0: I'll I'll tell you as much as I know, hopefully that
1: somebody will learn from it Yeah, Um, and maybe it's a different world, you know, in, in a couple more
0: years. Hopefully. Well, we're working towards that for sure. So, um, you know, just a, a quick little anecdote um, and this moment that I literally tell this story all the time, cause it was such a moment for me. Um, but you were, um, you know, working, obviously leading marketing efforts at Samsung a while back. And um, we were, you know, one of the agencies that had come for a big presentation to make to you guys. And um, it, I think we had about six or seven months to create this giant presentation And we came and we presented it to you and to a few other executives on your team. And I think um, one of the leaders or your boss or somebody would come over from Korea to see the work. And um, we presented it. And again, I think it was, you know, six or seven months worth of work um, that was all presented to you on that day. It was a big presentation, a huge effort on my team. And I know at that time there was a new team member that was brought in um, from Samsung um, who uh, saw the work and in the presentation, basically, I think on a sidebar told you that they wanted to see something very different than what we had presented that day. And so you pulled me aside after the meeting and I could I could feel a little bit of your stress just because you know that probably wasn't the first uh, impression you wanted to make on this first person. And you said, Valerie, I need you to redo everything and you've got two weeks to do it. And I looked at you and I said, how could I possibly do this job in two weeks? It took me seven months to do this job. And you said to me, if you want to keep the business, you're going to figure it out. And I have faith in you. And I literally like it was like I saw a ghost and I took a deep breath and I got back in an airplane and I came home and I figured it out. And it was one of the most incredible challenges of my life. And we activated the team in such an incredible way. And we came back in two weeks and we sold it through and you were thrilled. (laughs) It was just an incredible moment. But what that moment did is it taught me that I could do it and that I, you know, there was no limitations and I just needed the words of confidence and that push from you in order to do it. So thank you for that.
1: No, Valerie, I would tell you this. Thank you. Right. Um, But that is one example, really, of like how we women have to come together. You talk about like it's a male-dominated industry, right? I always say there are three things that we women have to keep in mind. And I think in that example, it came through. First one is courage. You know, the fact is you belong in that table. I recognize that. And you knew that. You just needed a little push. Once you know you belong the table, better off now with what's possible. Next thing is confidence. You know, just that little push, but you already had it in you. You, had, your group had it in you. You wouldn't be in the table if you didn't have it in the first place. And of course, I commend this. The community we built, right? That we could have those honest conversations, direct conversations, that really get to the heart of it quickly. That um, we are able then to move forward. And the quit's done. And and that's why when you say that, yeah, you've worked with me in two of the brands. I've been into. It's because of the confidence I have, the courage I know you'll take and the community we built that it has really created this cocoon for us to to be able to be to communicate and to be creative and i think that's our job as marketers at the end of the day
0: amazing but you know just just so you know that was that was a moment that i i tell that story all the time to my team and on other she dynasty episodes because sometimes you need that kind of slap in the face and that push and someone to believe in you And, you know, we made it happen. And again, just want to thank you for that, like, very important moment in my life.
1: Well, thank you. And I'll tell you this. Thank you for creating this platform. I don't want this to be like a kumbaya fest, but I look around. And what we need as a community is platforms like yours, uh, not just for people like me to share experiences, but really, hopefully, you know, in the sharing comes a new sense of um, hope, creativity that then would nurture the next generation and um, platforms like you really help in that end. So thank you for that.
0: You're welcome. Well, as you know, Shi Dynasty is, is um, you know, meant to tell a lot of your journey. Um, so I want to start way back in the very, very beginning. Um, you know, I want you to tell us uh, where, were, where were you born? Where were you raised? Uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood and what that was like.
1: I wish it was more eventful, but I was born and raised in the Philippines from a Chinese family. Um, and um, it was a very atypical Chinese upbringing, I would tell. It's traditional in the sense that you know, women are supposed to go to school, after that, finish school, get married, have kids, and the cycle continues. Mine was atypical because I was a third uh, child in the family, third girl. And let's just say, by the time it was my turn to grow up, my parents pretty much have figured out, you know, she'll be fine. Right? So because of that, I really pushed the envelope on. Everything I wanted to do, I was a more adventurous one in the family, uh, more curious in a sense. Um, I remember, and my parents nurtured that. Um, I, I traveled all over Asia, Europe, and the U.S. before I was twelve. Um, I was in the streets in our pro- in the political protest when I was in high school, um, and right out of college, a bucking trend of going to grad school or going or you know, going to a nine to five job. I Joined the Jesuit volunteers and became a volunteer teacher and social worker in the provinces, which was unheard of, which caused a lot of trepidation with my family, of course, but um, they let me be. And I think that kind of upbringing of, um, you know, there's guidelines, guideposts, but then we were really um, pushed by my parents to explore, to try to do the best you can. Um, and you know, especially for a for a girl,
0: we'd say. Um, it is very forward-looking of my traditional Chinese parents. So, do you do you identify as Chinese or Filipino or both?
1: Both. Um, but some people would say that I'm more Filipino than the next person who's hundred full-blooded Filipino. Um, I have no Filipino blood, that's the irony of it all. Um, because I think um your identity is not just based on uh, the blood that flows, your ethnicity, it, it's based on where you became as a person. And right now, I would say I my consciousness really grew out of um, you know my experiences in the Philippines. Um, and I've become a more well-rounded individual as I moved here to America. So I'm one of those hybrids, but not millennial.
0: <laughs> and so culturally... Um, When it comes to, you know, kind of women um, and, you know, excelling in their careers, is there a cultural difference between how Chinese look at women versus um, Filipino families? Tell us a little bit about the cultural differences there and how that played a role for you.
1: Not quite sure there is, because I would lump them all to being traditional, especially when I was growing up back then. Uh, What I can tell you is the difference between back then and now. And we're seeing now as uh, where women then were, yes, women were a part of the workforce. Um, there's no question about it. Uh, there were still though few of them who rose up to leadership positions. Um, and and so now fast forward 30 years, you're seeing a lot of more women um, uh, in positions of power of influence, I would say. Um, there is still a pocket of the population that still believes that the women's ho- place is in the home. Uh, but. Filipino women and Chinese women have excelled in being in business. Um, you look at the top women, um, the top entrepreneurs or top uh, business people back home in the Philippines, and they're peppered with women. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them are friends that I'm very proud of, that they've risen. Um, and so I think the evolution continues. No matter how traditional a culture is, um, two things will, will drive it to evolve. Time and the cultural uh, perspective of the, of, the, of the citizenry. And I think you're seeing a lot of that. Um, I was back in the Philippines the last 30 days, uh, back in May, I mean, uh, because I, was, uh, I wanted to be involved again in the political discourse. Uh, there was a big election happening and uh, the top candidate, one of the one, the, the, the two candidates um, in play, one was a woman and, and I believed in her Supported it all the way. Unfortunately, we didn't get there. Um, so the other side won. But this idea that's continually being pushed um, in the psyche of, of culture now is that women have a place. Uh, you still have to fight your way through. Nothing is handed to you. Uh, but with smarts, creativity, and you know, hard work, we will get there. And I think you and I in this position right now shows that, yeah, there it's, Meaningful steps have been taken.
0: Beautiful. So there's a lot of progress that has been made, especially since you've been a kid. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful. What did you? What did, when you were a child? What was like your first spark of what you wanted to be when you grew up? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Well, I
1: thought I was going to be a, a journalist uh, for the very simple reason that the microphone seemed to bring to take people it was a permission or a passport for you to explore travel. And for people to talk to you. Once they see a microphone, they want to talk to you. So throughout my education, undergrad in communication, college, media studies, I really thought I was going to be a journalist. Um, and it was, uh, to me, it was, a, it was a license to explore and talk to as many people as possible. And I had my fair share of that. Uh, lo and behold, though, um, as I learned more about really what my skill sets, my inclinations were, I found marketing. And marketing, I thought, was interesting because you were just not talking to people. You were just not, you know, satiating your sense of adventure. You were also influencing and shaping minds. And I think that is one of the things that marketing, um, people do not understand with marketing, the power of marketing. I think we as marketers know that. Um, And and for the longest time, have prided ourselves with, you know, it's their secret weapon. But in fact, it's really going to be our superpower to really change the world and become a force for good, and a force, and a force to to be reckoned with as an industry.
0: Love it. Any mentors in your young, you know, kind of your young adult life? Anyone who really shaped you before you got into, you know, the workforce? Anyone who really inspired you, especially any women?
1: I would say, and it's going to come as a surprise, the Benedictine nuns. I yes. Nuns. They were. Uh, I was in a. I was went to Saint Scholasticus College, which is a Benedictine um, uh, uh, run school, and the nuns there. I've never seen anything like it. Even with the hobbits, they were out in the streets, you know, protesting, encouraging us to be the women that were meant to be. Um, that sense of, uh, you know, uh, um, um, confidence on us, and at the same time. Uh, the sense of like telling us that our future is what we make out of it, that was really unheard of. And you can imagine parents um, really thought that the nuns were steering their us kids the wrong way. When in fact, until now, I say that they, these are the nuns that really um, shaped our worldview on what is possible and what our responsibility is. Beautiful.
0: And so you went to um, undergrad in the Philippines. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yes, I was at a
1: uh, Jesuit school. Mm-hmm.
0: And went, when did you have dreams or thoughts of coming to the to the U.S. and what sparked that?
1: Well, it, the my, my parents really wanted us to, you know, explore beyond the Philippines. And uh, I came here for grad school and that was the, my precondition to come here, I'll say. Uh, but it was because I wanted to go to NYU and NYU was in New York and that was. You talk about the license to explore. You would talk about the license to, you know, push your imagination. And the world is your oyster. I thought New York City was it. You know, the young mind that I had, and um, it 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 fulfilled all its expectations to me. School uh, was an avenue to learn from people from different cultures, from different uh, walks of life, from even different um, countries. Right, an international um, uh, student body. But then the city was for you, you know, was really for you, you know, it's for you for the taking, I always say. And that's where my, my passion for art, creativity, um, uh, really, really, really fostered into, into what I've become. Um, I'd say, too, that, you know, when I, when I got to America and uh, somehow jobs were plentiful. I mean, I remember getting job offers. It was a simple you know, just pick one and and go for the adventure. I always thought I wouldn't stay here. But that adventure, as you've seen, has really, uh, you know, blossomed into what has turned out to be a life and a career here in America. Um, so the quintessential immigrant experience, you'd say. But I did get a leg up from the education and and everything else was you got to make it on your own.
0: And what was the biggest culture shock coming from the Philippines to the U.S.? Like, what was the big thing that was like, oh, my gosh, this is so different. I'm going to have to change the way I think or be or feel.
1: You know, the first thing is that you don't have the network that you have back home. I mean,
0: the network back home is
1: not just your family, your extended family, but your friends network, then your school network. Right. It's such wide and it's, it's wide and deep. Now, uh, when you come here, you're you' starting from scratch. Right. You're creating your new network again. And none of this is based on blood, based on relation, based on the reputation of whoever who knows you and knows you. Nobody knows you. And talk about really starting from scratch. Um, But then I think what really comes through is you are who you are and uh, put in any menu, your your identity shines through. Um, Anybody who knows me from back home and from here, would know that it's the same Peggy. I'd like to say older and wiser, but really that the essence is is the same. And what drove me, that spirit of curiosity and sense of adventure is what drove me to where I've come through. I would never have thought, Valerie, that I would be in come along this far in marketing, let alone work for multinational companies, let alone be in technology, which none of my education shows that I was ever a tech geek, right? Um, It was all because of the belief that, you just put your one foot forward, one foot forward. Some are leaps, and then you you find your way. And I, I'm a firm believer in that.
0: What was one of your first jobs? Um, you know, after college, just maybe even just like a silly job was like. What What are some of the things that you did your first jobs?
1: Well, really, um, I'd had internships. Uh, you know, those are you know the kind of jobs. First one was I was an intern in the. In the sixty minutes of the the Philippines, sixty minutes is a you know news magazine show here, so we called it their pro productions, and uh, uh, Maria Ressa, who was the uh, was was one of the you know reporters, I remember meeting her then, and uh, so that was just a fluke. I, I I drove to their office, they didn't know what to make of me. I just said like I want to be your intern, and for at least two weeks I was. You know, I was a presence, but didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, but then, you know, you just th- start talking to people more, get into their good graces. And, you know, it was a fulfilling summer. That was my first foray into like, do you like what you want to do? Just go ahead. What's the worst thing they'll say? No. And you'd still be alive, right? I still say that to every person that to my, my team today, what is the worst thing if they say no, right? And it's like, you're not going to die. So but you did ask? Um, after that, I did become a teacher and social worker in the provinces. That was a, uh, 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 you know, I'd say a, a curveball, if only because I don't, I, you know, I'm a city folk. I've never been to the provinces. Very sheltered life. And now I'm living with three other people amongst the poor and um, uh, the provinces. And it was, uh, it's it, you know, until, I would tell you a story. Um, when I went back to the Philippines in May, I met my students again. The students I taught 30 years ago, and um, it was amazing to see them and to talk to them as adults. And everybody has progressed in their lives, besides the families, their careers, and it's so gratifying. And and as I told them before, I learned so much from them when I was a teacher. I was a teacher, but you were teaching me a lot of things. Again, the same thing. Um, they uh, provided me with perspectives about what life is now, what is the Filipino culture. Political, you know, leanings. Um, that I even ended my 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 meal with them and say again, you're teaching me, you know, the teacher is being taught again, and um, I thought that was a good trip back memory lane. But more importantly, um, the community that was built thirty years ago continues to be intact.
0: Fantastic. And when you went to NYU to get your master's, what was your focus?
1: I was my focus was international relations. And uh, communications because I wanted to work for a non governmental, international non governmental organization. Um, long story short, I ended up in advertising. People in advertising actually thought that major was worthwhile. <laughs> it was um, uh, and and it was because of the time of a lot of like international um, corporations getting into mergers, um, and communication and brand was was important, especially for permeating through cultures, so uh, I ended up being in advertising at Hill Holiday uh, in Boston, and I love Boston. Um, I love Hill Holiday, but really I picked it because of Boston. I just wanted to live in Boston, just try another culture. People always said New England culture is different from you know the South, so um, it was a good five years where I really got into a lot of um, um, you know diverse set of clients. And dealing with diverse set of people that were all all over the country,
0: so that was that was pretty cool. So that was your first marketing job out of college. Yes, beautiful. Any any snags in your first you know your first job? Any like real learning moments where you kind of fell down and had to pick yourself up? Anything that really stands out?
1: I think the, the, to me, the, the the biggest snag that I you know was later on, and that was more about culture and language. Right, I prided myself. Um, ever since I was a kid of being open, being, being uh, fairly worldly in my view. But then when I started working for um, foreign company, Sony, the Asian company, how hard could the adjustment be? And definitely all Asian cultures are different than Samsung and then LG. Um, what struck me was the value of language, the preciseness of language The dream was lacking. People were glossing over, oh, we're saying the same thing. No, we're not, right? And couple that with culture, where the word the joy expressed in American culture is different from joy expressed in Japanese or Korean culture. That, to me, was the, the biggest learning. That was the biggest nag and the biggest learning. And it, to me, it was a, a constant reminder, wherever I went, that you don't know what you're getting into, and you have to adjust. Constantly adjust. When I moved from Samsung to LG, people thought, "Oh, it's the same, right? It's the same. It's the same Korean culture. They're both in electronics. Should be the same." And I go, no, nope, A lot different. A lot the same." And all of this is basically culture. We're not talking about cultures based on ethnicity. We're talking about corporate cultures that is infused with ethnic culture. And at that point, the ball game's different. The views are different. Maybe you know tweak. But then those tweaks are what could be the difference between getting it right and getting it totally wrong. And so, um, to me, those were the, the biggest nags, and uh, in my career, that then I had to immediately find a way to pivot and find a way to address it because it was my reality. And somehow, I have a penchant for being as you know, joining companies are of foreign cultures. So there you go.
0: So what do you think, um, you know, obviously you started working, um, you know, with Sony and you've kind of, then you went to Animal Planet and then you went from there to Samsung and then uh, LG. Um, Where do you think in your career, was there, there's someone at any point that kind of noticed, hmm, there's something really special about this woman or something that you did that really kind of shifted and put you on a stronger path. Was there a moment that you can think of where that happened? Yes, um, it was at Sony early on. I was two weeks in the job and uh, the director,
1: I was a senior manager, the director of uh, the portable audio category somehow couldn't make a press conference. I forget what it is, right? Uh, And this press conference was seminal because it was the relaunch of the Walkman brand and we were doing it at the Sony club. So only a select few go there. And um, the director who hired me had the confidence in me to say, oh, so you're up, you're going to tell the story of Walkman to the press at the Sony Club. And mind you, my peers were all, were presenting the other categories, home category, mobile category, were VP level, direct, you know, actually director, VP, and the CMO was there. Uh, The Japanese contingent was there. And um, I remember, you know, him looking at me, um, John looking and saying, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, I hired you because I know you can do it. Um, you know, I was trying to figure out, well, did he know that he was not gonna be in this press conference? Uh but um and I did. I mean, I, I the, the most important thing was when I when I was doing it, I was nervous as hell. But after it, I was actually, you know, um uh not proud, but more importantly, like energized by the whole thing. I was like, oh, I can do this, I can do
0: this. So like you just confidence. I'm two weeks in the job. You realize you're recreating the moment you gave me, someone did for you. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like it's making me, it's actually making me tear up because what it's telling me is the importance when you're in a leadership position to pass that on to somebody else because you don't realize the impact it makes on someone's life, you know? And literally, you just recreated the same moment you gave me that, you know, that day, I don't know how many years ago at Samsung. So, yeah.
1: After that, I mean, even the executives would remember it and say, yeah, two weeks of the job. And then it just fostered a lot of things that then my move to, um, to Animal Planet was because of the reputation built. Uh, the former CMO of Sony, uh, no, Sony was moving to, uh, to Discovery. And so he asked me to join him. And I, I it's, you know, it's pretty cool considering I was just a senior manager, but he saw something. And so I think leaders like us, to your point, Valerie, it is, um, you know, to say that we can recognize talent, I think it's an overstatement, but we should be open for wherever it would come from, right? Where it's a matter of consequence, it's planned, it's like you know, a, a career path to a matter of consequent happenstance. We as leaders should be sensitive to those because that's where the magic happens. And um, I think that's where really our role is right now. Um, when people talk about mentoring. I say, is it really mentoring? Mentoring feels like, you know, you're deliberately um, saying you're anointing someone. To me, it's about nurturing because you never know which where it's going to come from and um, how it's going to manifest itself. Um, and as leaders, we have to recognize that.
0: Absolutely. So you've worked for, you know, three of the world's largest electronic um, companies, um, and, you know, had some very significant positions there. Um, again, very male-dominated space at the leadership level. Tell us, tell us a little bit about, you know, the overall experience. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges? And how did you, you know, did it ever get to you? And then how did you just kind of overcome and just realize, like, this is the way that I have to, to be in order to kind of get through to where I need to go?
1: I would give you an anecdote. Um, call me naive. But the first time I realized that there was really a lack of women up in the C-suite was, uh, I think, one year into my Samsung job, and we would have these conferences. And these conferences were, you know, executives from all the businesses would come together. And it was in Texas, in one of our plants in Texas. And I had a very simple question in the break. I said, where's the ladies room? Nobody could tell me where it is. So I had to go out, ask, um, you know, the, you know, the people who were assisting the conference was it, and nobody could answer me. Because really, when you look around the room, I was the only woman. So they didn't even prepare. I had to go to, this is a sad story, go to the reception desk, which is a ways away from the room because the receptionist, the receptionist was a woman. She knew where the ladies were. Yeah. Hey. Great story. Yeah. Now, now that's not it. When the buses came to pick us up, um, so I was keenly aware at that point, right? I go in to the room again, and it's only me, and then I see the receptionist you We got on the bus, and now I was more bold. I stood up, and I go, guys, I'm not the only woman now. I, I shouted out out to the bus, because by then, it was also clear to everyone that I was the only woman. I said, look, the bus driver is a woman, and everybody clapped in that bus. So you talk about that was my awakening series of moments. Uh, and then of course when the pictures come out of the class pictures and you're the only woman, kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's glaring. Um, I give I give I give um I give Samsung kudos because I was the first non-Korean woman executive in 2007. But they already had three other, I think three others, uh, women executives. There are Koreans. Okay. Um, since then, of course, Samsung has really taken an effort to really uh, make it, a, I'd say, a, a more diverse um, C-suite. Uh, what did? What were my challenges? Um, first of all, there was just lack of awareness that there was a problem. <laughs> it was a, even there was a lack of awareness in my part. Think of it that way, right? Until I was hit with three instances in the same event is when it just go wait a minute, there's something wrong. Um, lack of awareness, number one, um, and number two. There is, a, uh, you know, there is a sense in my part that I had to work doubly hard. Um, so let's talk about the first one, um, You know the, the fact that this lack of sense of awareness. The good news is that uh, when I come in a room, uh, people kind of recognize that there's a woman in the room. Right? Um, I'm not a shrinking violet. I speak up, um, I do it with my jokes, I do it with my sense of humor and all that. My presence is felt and I think that was important for, for for the the C-suite to understand that uh, that there is a need for a different voice, right? It takes a while, but there's a need. The second one is working doubly hard. Um, I tell you that it was the physical exhaustion was there. You had to prove yourselves two levels. There is a the substantive part of the job, which is what you do, what your output is. There are all numbers behind it, but the second part is the personal socializing part. I had to keep up with the boys. You know, and, and the, you know, they respected me. The, that I would always say, they respect me. No untoward things happen. But how do you keep up with the boys? Um, but all that does add up to physical extra, exhaustion. And that is why, you know, eight years at Samsung, where we achieved a lot, I decided to leave it because I had to take care of myself. Uh, it was a lot of per, uh, professional um, fulfillment, but a lot of also like rethinking of like what kind of pace and what kind of life you need to, you know, that you want to have right um and that's where I ended up with LG course corrected a lot of things, and how do you course correct that? Well first of all, you're older, you're more aware of your boundaries um and at that point corporate America even in LG now which is Korean is more is more sensitive to to the goings on and certainly um there's more less expectation of like you gotta keep up um but there is still so a minimum level of course like any corporation to, to socialize right and so um it, what it is is you got to be creative about it like uh, I started getting creative imaginative of like what are the what are the moments that you're engaged and what are the moments that you don't really need to be engaged um it's always a choice do I think um some of those moments I you know purposely backed off on could have cost me an opportunity maybe but I never felt it and the fact is, uh, as evidence of my career, um, I, I was able to progress. And to me, the more important thing on that now is sharing that knowledge in my team, encouraging them. I always say like, look, you don't, you may not have to do everything, but there's always a yin and yang and things and just showing the good work is not enough because at the end of the day, the workplace is a human workplace. It requires interaction and relationships beyond um, numbers, beyond data fuels the conversation. And in corporate America, um, all the more for us to, marketers are asked to be more human and relationships is the fuel of that.
0: Right. Let's talk a little bit about um, emotion in the workplace and how it plays into being, you know, one of the few female executives on a team. You know, it's interesting, you know, as a woman and especially me in my career, you know, I, I was always taught to leave emotion out of business. You know, you always hear that. It's it's just part of what you're taught. I think, I don't know if men are taught. I mean, I think maybe it comes more natural. You know, there's actually data showing that women are more emotional beings in many ways or not more, sorry, they're not more emotional. They show emotion more. We all have the same amount of emotions It's the way we express them. And so, you know, it was interesting for me, and this was like a huge transformation, was, um, you know, when I um, became a female owned agency a few years ago and, you know, bought my partner out. um, Because I was always taught not to uh, lead with emotion, I decided to call BS on that. And I decided to change my entire brand identity and my entire way that I lead my company through emotion. And I think that there's a huge misconception that when you're emotional, it means that you've lost control, that you're freaking out, that you don't know how to handle something. And so I just want to understand, you know, how emotion has kind of played into, you know, your roles as a female executive. Have you ever felt like you've had to suppress it or, you know, do you, you know, has there been any learnings around, you know, the emotional part of um, your journey and your your career?
1: So Valerie, I was schooled in the same... Same same way as you have, right? Which is like, don't show emotion. It's a sign of weakness. Uh, it means you're out of control, and nobody wants to talk to anybody who's out of control. Um, yep, that was our school. As I progressed in my career, um, especially in the line of work we are, which is based on creativity, on connecting with people, you can take emotion out of it. In fact, emotion is what separates you from the next agency, from the next campaign. From the other brand. Now, emotions run the gamut. And I think that's what it is. It's people have, have pigeonholed it to all these like, say, I wouldn't negative emotions, like you know, fear, anxiety, sadness. But the, the best emotions are also the emotions that drive people, right? Joy, inspiration, right? Uh you know, all these, the, all these are emotions. And so the question to us is more, I mean, to me as a marketer is how do I harness it? Thank God the zeitgeist has evolved, right? Not just in corporate America, but also in how consumers want to relate with their brands. Brands are not just a logo. Brands are not just a jingle. Brands are not just a product. They want to relate. Social media is around that, right? To relate with it. They look at brands as people, as evolving um, personalities that they either want to be with or they want to join or they feel proud to bring along in their lives. And so all that is emotion the question to us and and this is the big unlock to me um, was when did i pivot right i pivoted when i realized i was not marketing brands i was marketing really uh with people so enough of what you're selling it's who you who you're connecting with is the point point. and so if you know who you're connecting with is inherently sporty and loves adrenaline and thinks that you know jumping off uh, skateboarding, you know with a ten foot high, uh, you know a contraption, is about energy and excitement. You go there, right? With all the sec- with all the safety measures, of course. But the idea there is that emotions are intuitive. They are as instinctual and in what makes us human, and that I think is. Um, Not just a requirement now, it's a prerogative that we all have to not just acknowledge, but also embrace in all our work. Um, When we were, the the recent work of LG, my tenure there, um, what we tried to do was say, we were good at our products. But what was the emotion we were trying to tell people, uh, to exude to people to come join our brand? And that emotion was a sense of realism, of joy that then life's not perfect but life's good, but that emotion too of um, forging ahead, you know, having the confidence to forge ahead, and and those kinds of emotions have played into our storyline. Um, humor, LG never embraced humor in such a way, right? Embrace of humor in culture. Now talk about another dynamic to it, right? That added into it, uh, and and that's how we redefine the word uh, the the Perennial line of life's good, which is that life's only good when we feel it, when we live it, and we embrace it, all its foibles. But of course, we highlight more of the positive.
0: So, you know, as the the CMO at LG, you know, here you are in this role, which is part, you know, business and dealing with, you know, your leadership team, you know, the team back in Korea. But you're also the steward of the creativity of the brand, right? And so I think this is like the question I really wanted to ask you of all the questions. How do you navigate making sure that you are making sure that the stakeholders, you know, your, your superiors, your bosses are kind of happy, right? And still at the same time, maintain, ma- making sure that the end consumer is really who you're trying to please, right? Because you know better, I know that you know, cause we've been in this position <laughs> together <laughs> That those two things don't always align. You know, sometimes some of the, you know the bigger bosses care about, you know the bottom line and the numbers and they have a very distinct idea of how to get there which isn't always in tune with these fierce emotional connections that we have to make as marketers. And I just want to understand how did you navigate bringing those two together? I think. Um, well, first of all, I think you need
1: accomplices, and so um, I had accomplices um, up in Korea uh, headquarters. Uh, I'd say the the, the CEO um, is a fair, is a very progressive uh, uh, stakeholder. He was the one who hired me at LG. Even the stakeholder here, the CEO here in North America, uh, is progressive. The presence of the business. So first thing you have to do is figure out who your accomplices are, right? Now, make no mistake, your accomplices are also bottom line readers. That's their job. And thank God, right? Because um, I, I want the bottom line to be good. And so this is now where the, uh, the healthy levels of discourse and respect come into play. It's not easy. I mean, I would say that even my stakeholders would Say like, oh, Peggy's a, a, a tough nut, or Peggy, Peggy's a tough bargain, right? Um, but then they get the results in the same way. I would say this is not the bargain I signed up for. You said you were going to support brand and everything, um, but the fact that they continued to be engaged, right, with the discourse, and some not. I, I would, I promise you, I didn't win every, I didn't win every discourse. If I had a fifty batting, fifty percent batting average, I would just be happy, right. Because in the end, um, you're not talking about changing individuals. Your individuals are there, they're your locks, they're, there, they're your locks, they're your keys too. It's more of moving an organization, a culture that is not inherently um, you know, uh, built for end consumer. It's a culture built to create the best products in the world, to be able to distribute it, in the best locations in the world, to price it in the most uh, value equation that consumers can find. And that's why they bring marketers like you and I, right? To add now that, that other, the next dimension, which is connecting with the audience. It's not easy, I would tell you, it takes numerous conversations, late night conversations, multiple PowerPoints, but those conversations need to be had because here's the cost if you don't have those conversations. You get uh, unwilling um, partners that then you need to help you push things forward. You know, uh, a corporation marketing a brand is really an amalgamation of efforts of different people, of different functions within an organization. You need finance to be able to figure out like what the numbers could be. You need sales to be able to sell this to your your customers, right? Not all of them are into it too. They'd rather just give them, the, you know, give us the lowest price. And so the idea there is how do you create this? this how do you you make a symphony out of this orchestra? And by doing that, um, which takes you know like any practice session, some people go out of tune. Some people change the music midway. Um, temper tantrums happen. How do you do that? And it does take leaders, right? You hope that your accomplices are leaders who can think beyond their current short-term, mid-term goals.
0: So you and have I think to, that's what... You have, to educate, you have to educate a lot of people uh, about, you know, kind of how important the emotional side of this is, in a sense, sure. right?
1: But how do you... You know, the best The best way to to educate them is
0: to show them the results.
1: That's the thing. and um, And that's why the first is always the hardest, because it's something new. But once they they see the results, they're getting oh, there's something here. Don't expect them to change 360 because that's not going to happen, right? But they the, the taste is now the the emotion. Think of it that way. That little joy they felt, like they didn't get metallic taste, they got a sweet taste of success. Is now what's going to be the engine the next time you talk to them. Now is it the cakewalk the next time? I would say nothing's a cakewalk because it, it's a business, and as marketers, we we are. We, we invest a lot of money in the marketplace, and like anything else, they expect returns on.
0: Right, and That's, they they probably get the good kind of emotions when they, when sales are good, right? Those are yeah. the right kinds of emotions, <laughs> or when they're
1: when their customers call them and say, "We like what you did with that. We want to use right. that." Right. Suddenly, it validates not right. marketing; it validates them. Yep, absolutely. It's the team. So, so I I, I challenge whether. Whether I'm the only one who experiences, I think any brand, whether they're American brands, you know, European brands, it's the same discourse that needs to happen. I don't think anybody rolls over and says, "Yeah, let's do it." I love that environment. Tell me where that is, and I'll (laughs) go. But that's not the reality.
0: Tell me, tell me about a project that you've worked on in your career that you're just so so proud of.
1: I tell you the 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 first taste I had. that I knew I was on the right track was still back at Sony early on in my career. Um, We were relaunching the Walkman brand and it was your mother's cassette player. And we were launching mini discs, CD and network Walkman, all these like they're, they're gibberish at the end of the day. And to me, that to me was uh, uh, the fact that we were able to create something that people wanted to be a part of. That's never happened to me in my career. Prior to that, I was selling stuff. Uh, but to create that culture that then people really, re- it resonated with the young kids. And I was much younger then, and I still call them young kids. Um, they were, um, it showed me the power of images. Because so we, we had a, um, all we had was this, 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 this. Created a character, an alien character called Plato, who landed on Earth and was wearing the Walkman we had a, a snappy tune, a soundtrack to it, and suddenly you became the hip and cool brand again, right? So I saw the power of that. So that when, when, we went, when I went to Samsung, uh, people actually questioned my judgment when I went to Samsung, they said, why did you go to a cheap Korean third-rate brand? And I said, you watch what we can do with this. That's when my, my idea of like, join brands that have a, have a goal of, of transformation right and for 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 Samsung, clearly it was you know we we, were, we want to be a premium brand because then the change that you can affect to them is more palate, more more potent, and then you would have people come to you. I think that's one of the reasons why we worked with you in in in, in Samsung, right the Soma appliance brand. it was nothing before Valerie Wu came into play. It was nothing. come on, it was my third. It was my second um, mission after building the TV business, the home applying business, and, and, and look at how it's paid dividends and opened up more doors for you at this point. So that sense of taking, you know, recreation and, you know, creating a new course, all that baggage can be rehabilitated to be something else.
0: Absolutely. And have you ever had a moment in your career where you've been mandated to do something you didn't believe in? And, oh, yes. And how did you handle that?
1: Numerous times, uh, all the way up during the LG time, and I think I my 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 strategy is simple, right? You make your point, you make it clear, you make it you make your point several times <laughs> to as many people who listen. And if you don't win the discourse, you don't win. You do you adopt you you do what they say they want you to do, but then you bring in your smart to it, tweak it. So that, you know, uh, at minimum, it's not a total disaster. Um, Knowing fully well that's not going to work, I think. One of the last instances I did this was in LG, um, you know, because I believe it's a team. And if the team decided we have to do it, you know, who am I to say no? Um, But it's still expected of me to make it successful, right? Even if I don't believe in it, um, because that's our job. And um, I think what we've shown um, in those moments is fortitude. And you know, believe it or not, it also uh, inspired confidence in my managers to say, "Look, didn't work, right? She did it. She actually tried to make it work. You know, there's effort shown. It was not just a cut and paste." Um, and um, that's where they go now. Okay, let's try your way. So,
0: do you, ever, do you ever do you ever go back in a very political and thoughtful way and say, "I told you so"? <laughs> not really, because because they say it you at some point. One big I told you
1: so was um, a campaign we did in 2010 for Samsung. I kid you not. In 2014, uh, the, uh, one of the heads in Korea finally came to me and said, we know we should have used your campaign program. I, when, he, when he said that to me, <laughs> okay. after four years ago, okay, that's nice to know. But um, so I never do. I just, um, I, I do you know, of course, there's a sense of pride. I tell my team, right? But upstream, it doesn't really bring. You know, it doesn't. There's no positive effect of that conversation. Let's put it that way. There's none.
0: So, what what what's been the hardest moment in your career?
1: The choices I have to make, um, and the choices are, believe it or not, not campaigns, not not creative um, choices about the direction of the brand. Because there's so many ways you could, you could take a brand, right? Um, they're hard because it's not just a decision of the moment. It means that you are putting a stake in the ground and following it through for years. Now, the good news is that, um, we did it at Samsung, put a stake in the ground where we want to take it. It's come, it's morphed in many ways as it should since I've left, but it remains to be now a strong, brand that people don't even remember when I tell them it was a cheap Korean brand. They don't even remember. So memories can be erased. Um, It is an idea of um, being going back to the three C's. Confidence, courage, and now the belonging is not just about you, but also about the brand's place in culture. I firmly believe in that. Sony, Samsung, Discovery, LG—they all have places in culture. The executives have gone back and uh, gone away already, but the brands are still here, and they continue to morph. So at the end of the day, I look at my role as the steward of the brand at that moment, and I better not drop the baton—is what I always say. Because as I, I think I've said this to you in meetings, these brands will outlast, outlive all of us. So what do you do at this moment to make it meaningful so that then it's got another life? It's like the sequel. It gets another sequel, another sequel. And all that sequel means jobs for people and uh, livelihood. That's how I simplify everything at this point.
0: Peggy, I think you've answered all of my kind of main questions. What I want to move into now is what we call our rapid fire questions, uh, where I'm just going to ask you a quick question. And you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind in one sentence. Okay, so I might put you on the spot a little bit, but that's okay. So my first question is, what is your greatest strength? Passion. Peace for passion.
1: People have told me about it and I'm embracing it. What is your greatest weakness?
0: Not knowing when to stop. If you could have one skill set that you currently don't possess, what would it be?
1: Oh, playing an, a musical instrument proficiently.
0: I mean, I play, you know, the piano, but proficiently. If you could totally change careers, do something completely different than what you're doing, what would it be? A bush pilot
1: in Africa. What does that mean? A bush pilot? Those, those pilots who um, fly small airplanes and oh. ferry... Goods and tourists from one camp to the other. Okay.
0: I <laughs> love that. Uh, just... What keeps you up at night professionally?
1: Whether everything I'm
0: doing has a purpose. If you could have uh, one piece of advice um, for women who are listening, um, who are trying to navigate, you know, obviously a still very male dominated world of electronics, what would it be?
1: Believe. Believe that you belong.
0: What does success mean to you?
1: Doing what you love and finding purpose in it. Hopefully along the way, helping the next person.
0: And then finally, um, you know, I obviously know you can't divulge too much, but, you know, where do you see yourself going next? What's like the next big goal or milestone?
1: The next that I hope that the next position I, I find myself in would be in a position of transformation. And um, include purposeful work.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think you have answered all of my questions. Um, you know, the last thing that I I want to say is there are a handful of people um, that I know or in my life that when I say their name, the reaction that comes back is so strong and so incredible and so positive. I mean, Peggy, I hope you realize how, how much of an impact you've made on so many people, um, you know, and just the, the positive things that people say about you and what a leader you are. I mean, you are just that person. When I say your name, people are like, wow, she's amazing. And I know you're someone who doesn't like a lot of compliments, but I, I am here to just tell you that, uh, you, you have affected a lot of people and I hear it over and over again. And I know we have a lot of mutual people that we know, Gail and Maria, who will probably listen to this, who, you know, all feel so strongly about you. And thank you. Thank you for everything you've done for me and my personal career. And I'm so excited to see what you do next.